Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Exhibition, nothing personal. Word of the day on Bastille Day. There's a party going on in France right now, maybe with masks, maybe without, but it's Bastille Day, July 14th, 2021, otherwise known as just another Wednesday. It's the day after the All-Star Game. I hope you were all up late watching it because there was a lot to see, a lot to digest, so much to talk about. We got to get right to it. I was asked to talk about my reflections of the All-Star Game. It's funny when you've got a microphone and you've got experience as an executive and you're hired by a media company, they want reflections. Could you come on CBS Sports HQ after the game and talk about your thoughts of All-Star Weekend? Like it's some sort of religious experience. What do you think about what happened? What do you think about Shohei Otani? Hmm. I think I'd like to have him on my team. How do you feel about Vladimir Guerrero? Ooh, I get warm inside. I get the shivers from head to toe, like I'm back in high school waiting for the February issue of Sports Illustrated. Not the sportsman of the year, by the way. I do have some thoughts and reflections, though, so I might as well give them. The number one thing of yesterday, if you watch the All-Star Game, you're aware the game was supposed to be in Atlanta. We covered this in great detail. What a crutch, Coca, going back to previous episodes. We covered this in great detail that the Atlanta Braves were supposed to host the All-Star game. And then certain laws were passed that may or may not quash the rights of certain individuals to vote. Therefore, the All-Star game was moved to another state where they may or may not quash the ability or the ease in which people can vote called Colorado. The players were much H-A-P-P-I-E-R that it was in Colorado for various R-E-A-S-O-N-S. But there was a whole plan to honor Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron is the home run king. Not the mattress king. Not the king of England. The home run king. Nah, is he? I'm sorry. I'm calling you the home run king. I'm sorry, Barry. You're the home run king. All right? You are. You have the number. But Henry Aaron, for those of us of a certain age, and unfortunately only of that certain age, recognized Henry Aaron as the greatest home run hitter of all time at a time when being a black home run hitter came with death threats, not with adulation. So when he hits a home run off Al Downing to break the record in the 1970 season, <laughs> Coca. Help me. Was it 74? I don't know. I was very young at the time. All I know is a very young Craig Sager was there waiting for him. In any case, he breaks the home run. It was 74. Amazing. Amazing grace. And Chuck, 
Alex English. Henry Aaron was honored with a game that was played in Denver, which I found to be strange, but he was honored because he passed away this year. He was honored because he was a trailblazer in so many ways. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball, but Hank Aaron made sure that that color barrier stayed broken and crushed. He was able to do things on a baseball field that most men can't do. 25 all-star appearances. 25. So they get Lenny Kravitz. I love being in the conversation where Major League Baseball chooses who's going to throw out the first pitch. Who's going to sing the national anthem? It was Christopher Jackson from Hamilton fame. And it was Peyton Manning from Denver Broncos fame. Who's going to narrate all the special videos? That's a big discussion. And they went with Lenny Kravitz. The discussion happens like this. Side note, Coca, not in the show, but just so you know, when deciding who's going to throw out the first pitch to the national anthem, who's going to narrate the psych up pre-videos, the discussion centers around what's going on in the world today. What kind of demographic do we want? Sorry, but that's just a fact. So Lenny Kravitz, Kravitz does a video. That's Zoe's father, by the way. Lisa Bonet's ex-husband. Does a, uh, who's married to the guy with the tattoos who plays Aquaman. Jason Bonifasa, but that's not his name either, but it's something like that. And uh, it showed Hank Aaron as an Atlanta Brave and as a Milwaukee Brewer and what he meant to the game while he was playing, but more importantly, what he meant to the game when he was done playing. He and his wife, Billy, did charitable work that would make your eyes tear. They cared about education for kids. They cared about making sure that kids understood history so that it would not repeat itself. Henry Aaron was a fascinating man. There were parts of him that were bitter about what he went through, parts of him that were bitter about the money that he didn't make. Many, many of the older generation of players have that. But the overwhelming legacy of Hank Aaron is what he meant for the game. So that to me was the number one thing that happened, making sure an entire new audience of people appreciated who Hank Aaron was. So you're saying, but David, the demographic of the All-Star game is like the demographic of baseball. It's all people old, in which case they already know who Hank Aaron is. And my answer is you're wrong. You're wrong, Dr. Brewster. And the reason you're wrong is that on Jewel events, it is a totally different demographic than regular season games or even early playoff games. The people watching this are mothers and sons, mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, families. And I'd like to believe that there were families around this country and around this world who said to their kids, please watch this, and then spoke about Henry Aaron. So the game starts, they introduce. I always like when they introduce the players because isn't it fun to see which players are short, who's tall, who's big, who gets booed when the game's in an NL West city like it was yesterday. Other teams, other players from NL West teams, like if you're on the Giants or the Dodgers or the Padres, you're going to get booed by Rockies fans. The irony is the overwhelming majority of people in that ballpark are not Rockies fans because MLB controls the tickets. Each team gets an allotment of tickets for itself. And so you've got sponsors, you've got VIPs, you've got season ticket holders from other teams, you've got family, friends of players. It's the least home crowd of any Rockies game that there will be all season. 
So the introductions happen, the games start, and we're all excited to see what's going to happen with Nolan Arenado. Yeah, Nolan Arenado. Why does that excite me? Nolan Arenado is a player, a star player with the same agent, by the way, great agent, same agent as Giancarlo Stanton, Joe Wolf, who signed a long-term deal with the Colorado Rockies. He was going to be the mainstay of their franchise, but then the Rockies traded him because the Rockies stink. The Rockies wanted to lower their payroll, so they had to get rid of Arenado because he didn't want to be there anymore because he didn't think the Rockies were trying to remember all of those trials and tribulations. He went to the Cardinals. Samson said, hey, guess what? I don't mean to refer to myself in the third person like Ricky Henderson used to do, but Nolan Arenado goes to the Cardinals, and I said the Cardinals are going to win the Central in a runaway. They just won the Central. Meanwhile, you're going to see today that they're not going to win the central. So Nolan Arenado gets introduced as a St. Louis Cardinal and gets a standing ovation. The love for Nolan Arenado. So all I kept thinking about was my time in Florida. The fans are given a standing ovation to a player who comes back and the visceral anger and hatred toward the Monfort brothers and specifically Dick Monfort, the owner of the Rockies. It's not even palpable. And I'm not whining or complaining because I'm not going to whine about it, nor am I going to complain about it. I didn't say neither, so I can't say nor. I'm getting booed because we traded Nolan Arenado, but Nolan Arenado doesn't get booed even though he said he doesn't want to play there anymore. So we are granting Nolan Arenado his wish. Of course, we are getting concomitant benefits by lowering the payroll and getting out of that obligation long-term that they had to Nolan Arenado, who's the best third baseman in baseball, who's making whatever the money is. It's got, he must've gotten 250, 250 to 280 is my guess of the contract he signed, you know, making 25 to $30 million a year. You get out of that contract, but the love they felt for him, 260 for eight, thank you, Coca. The love they felt for him, it made me smile and made me wistful because as fans, maybe people are beginning to understand the business of baseball, the reality of players who don't want to be in a certain place, even though they're guaranteed a certain amount of money that is so much money that they can't turn it down even when they don't want to play for that team long-term. And then they change their mind. They go to a different team. Do the Rockets still love James Harden? Do the Cavaliers still love... LeBron or the Heat still love LeBron? It just made me thinking, but Nolan Arenado gets an ovation as they're introducing everyone because he was starting, obviously, at third base, voted in by the fans. The game starts, and we're all holding our breath, watching the guy who was the number one seed in the home run derby the night before bat leadoff in the game. Shohei Otani, the center of the entire storm created by Stephen A. Smith, the center of all the attention created by Major League Baseball because they want him to be the star because he should be the star because he is the star. He bats leadoff. He grounds out, I think. End of the first inning. Max Scherzer gets out of the inning. One, two, three. Leading off his fourth All-Star game. Up comes Shohei Otani to bat. And then he bats, he gets out, and then they go to commercial, they come back, and he's on the mound. Shohei Otani got the win for the American League last night, pitching one scoreless inning. After hitting leadoff, he got two at-bats, which I think we said he would get, or I said that on some show I did, which I think was this one. And then 
he gets interviewed during the game with his interpreter as an absolute FU to ESPN, showing the world that Shohei Otani, A, has an amazing personality, B, has an electric smile, and C, is willing to do the media things that are required when you are going to be a star in Major League Baseball. It was history that you were watching. Players don't do this. Here's the equivalent. I was thinking about this last night, staring at the ceiling through my eyelids. I was thinking, can you imagine just for one second, if Patrick Mahomes were one of the best defensive backs in football? I'm just curious. Would that be crazy to you? If the best quarterback, when the ball went to the defense, to the other team, he was covering the best wide receiver for the other team because he played defense too. I'm just wondering, would that be strange to you? Would you say that can't be? There's no player who can ever do that. You can't play both sides of the ball. That's what Otani's doing. And I am not going back on my word where I tell you that I don't think Otani should play both sides of the ball going forward because it's going to have a deleterious impact, a negative impact on his career because he can't be the best pitcher he can be and the best offensive player he can be long-term doing both. You just can't do it. John Smoltz, the play-by-play, the uh, color analyst uh, for uh, uh, Fox, former pitcher, Hall of Famer, was talking about how difficult it is to do what he's doing. So take a minute and talk to your family, your friends, your coworkers about what's going on in baseball because you've never seen it in your life or in my life. And stop comparing Otani to Babe Ruth. Have any of you seen Babe Ruth? I haven't. I don't know how to compare him to Babe Ruth. I never saw him play. I only know his stats. So then I'm watching the game, and then my guy, Vladimir Guerrero, the little boy who I knew who was never little, he was born big a funny sort of jovial kid, by the way, when he was a kid, not the kind of kid where we said to ourselves, wow, he's guaranteed to win the MVP as the youngest MVP in the history of baseball at 22 years old. We didn't know he was that kind of kid. We just knew he had great hand-eye coordination. He was great at hitting wiffle balls and having catches as a tiny kid. And I just was thinking last night while watching that I was wistful. I missed baseball. People say to me all the time, would you ever go back? And I say no, because I love doing nothing personal. And I'm sticking to that because I love it and I'm not stopping because you won't let me stop. We take one day off and it's Coca's fault and everything goes into the shitter. But we're back. But I just, I was watching Nathan Ivaldi pitch, Nate Ivaldi for the Red Sox. He was a Marlin. We traded for him and then traded him. I'm watching Vladimir Guerrero, who I knew, and Tatis. And then JT Realmuto hit a home run, former Marlin. I'm watching Trevor Rogers pitch two innings, give up under runs because they called an error on a fielder behind him. He gave up two runs. He was the last first round pick. He was the final first round pick of my career in 2017. And I felt as though I was thinking about 2017 and hosting the all-star game. And during the stand up to cancer part, I was thinking about my sister and I was thinking about cancer and and the money that's raised and the change that can happen that that baseball can effectuate. And I missed it. I admit it, Coca. I almost ran away last night, Matt. I really did. But of course I didn't because the sun came up and I'm back. You know, there were 40 first time all-stars. Do you know that? Or 42. So during the draft, when you're drafting people like a Rogers, 
like a Trevor Rogers saying, God, I want him to be an all-star because then I look good as a scout or as a person in player development or as a GM or as a president. You, it's your dream is to draft an all-star. And when you're going through the draft, you're not drafting for position. You're actually drafting according to the best players available. Talk to 30 GMs and they will tell you the same thing if they don't lie to you, which the majority will, but they will say, we want to draft according to our board. You make a board of 200 guys and you rank them. And when someone takes the person ahead of you, the person that's number one on your list, you go to the person number two on your list. And that board of available players is based on negotiations you've already had with the agents for your top five rounds. Totally illegal, but happens every single time. They're called pre-draft deals. You do not draft a player in the first round unless you know you are going to sign them or unless you know you're not going to be able to sign them and you're going to save the money. Yes, we did that. And you don't draft a player until you know that that player is going to sign with you if you want to sign them. So two big storylines came from the draft that we have to address. The first one is what the Mets did, and they are being lauded. And I don't mean just applauded. I mean lauded. I can't believe they were able to draft John Rocker. I can't. That's not his name, Coca. Holy cow, that just came to me. <laughs> his name is Kumar Rocker. He is a starting pitcher. He is a college pitcher. He was a teammate of Jack Leiter at Vanderbilt. Am I close? Do I have the right guy, Coca? I don't know whether I do. I'm totally having a moment. It's been that kind of day. But I think he was teammates with Jack Leiter, who's Al Leiter's son. Who Jack Leiter, I knew as a Little League player. God damn, I have gray hair, which I don't. I don't really dye my hair. Not really. I don't dye my hair at all. But since nothing personal started, I'm up. I count gray hairs because who doesn't have time to count gray hairs? And I was at eight, and now I'm like at 40. Can you see him? If you're on the YouTube channel, Nothing Personal with David Sampson, you really can't. It's not because of the light I use. It's because my hair is black and there's just a little gray hair. Not really in the, yeah, whatever. Okay. So Rocker gets drafted by the Mets and people were shocked. Oh my God, Rocker was available that low. It makes no sense. He was supposed to go way higher in the draft. How come he hasn't been drafted yet? Where is he? Wait a minute, it's our pick and he's still there? Do you know what happens when a player falls like Rocker fell? It's because the agent says to the teams above him, above the Mets in this case, we're not gonna sign for you. And if you be do sign for you, we want more than your slot money. Here's how the draft works. You get a basket of money. Let's say you get $7 million. That $7 million is the amount of money you can spend on all of your draft picks. In the first round, there are slots. If you are the first player drafted, it's not like the old days where you can get paid $80 million on a major league contract, which means you're on the roster already, or you can get paid $50 million on a minor league contract, or you can get $10 million or 15. No, there is a slot for the first pick of the first round. There's a slot for the second pick of the first round. And the slots get smaller as the picks get lower. 
So if you're supposed to go number two and you think you're going to make $8 million and you go number 20 and all of a sudden you're only going to make $4 million, you may not be happy. But what you may do if you're one of the best players in high school or college who's eligible for the Rule 4 Amateur Draft is you may say to the teams, hey, no matter where I'm drafted, I want $6 million. Hard stop. If you don't give me six, I'm not signing with you. And by the way, if you do give me six, I'm still not going to sign with you if you're Kansas City. So Rocker says to the Mets, if you draft me, I want to play for you, but you're giving me $6 million. And the Mets said, but wait a minute, the slot value for our pick is $4.7 million. And Kumar's agent, they call him advisors. Have you ever seen that? When the players get drafted, they say, I want to thank my advisor. It's not an advisor. It's an agent. But you're not allowed to have an agent, so they call it an advisor until you're drafted. Then the advisors become agents. Uh-oh, it's magic. It's amazing how that works. So the slot for the Mets pick was $4.7 million. The Mets draft Kumar Rocker, and a day later, they announced they've signed him for $6 million. You don't negotiate a $1.3 million deal above slot in one day. That deal was done by the Mets before they even picked him. And the agent for Rocker told every team above the Mets, you better not take him because we got to deal with the Mets. That happens every single day. Every single year. Guess who the agent was? I'll give you three guesses. Joel Wolf, nah. Dan Lozano, uh -uh. Scott Boras. Are you shocked? <sighs> okay. What about the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? People are giving that attention. I want to explain why. They drafted 20 pitchers in 20 rounds, and they're famous for now for being so great. So here's how it works. The Angels have a very high ERA in, ma in the ma Major League Baseball at the Major League level. It's like over five, let's say, is their starter's ERA. They need starting pitching. They've got these great position players. They've got Otani. He's their best pitcher. Their other pitchers are absolute crap. They can't make the playoffs. They can't do anything with Mike Trout or Rendon, the best position player free agent of a couple of years ago. And so what's going on? So they say, no problem. We're going to draft pitchers. We need pitching. And that's what everybody is saying. All these people on TV, the Los Angeles angels went after it and they got pitching horse hockey. It's not how it works. Los Angeles angels were not drafting pitching because they have no pitching. They were drafting pitching because they said, you know what? There's a bunch of position players we could take. We have a huge number of position players available. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. We have position players already signed to long-term deals. Why don't we just take pitchers? It's normal to take 16 or 17 pitchers. Last year, the Marlins took 17, took out of, out of five rounds, they took five pitchers. They went five for five, the first team to ever draft all pitchers in an entire draft, but it was only five rounds because of COVID. This year, I think the Dodgers did 17 of 20. There were other teams that did 18 of 20, 16 of 20 pitchers. Why do you want more pitchers in your system? Why are the Angels doing that? It has nothing to do with your major league pitching. It has everything to do with Tommy John, with torn labrum, with flame out, with, oh my God, he now stinks, with burn out. No matter how good you think your pitching is, you always need more of it at the big league level. And to get more of it at the big league level and you want to be like the Rays, you have to have a system filled with pitching because most of them are simply not going to be good and or they're not going to make it, which is the same thing. 
they're not, or they're good. They would have made it, but they get injured. So the angels getting all this love for doing something so epic is what we've all done over the years. Always. We had multiple picks in the first round in 2005. I mean, we screwed up on all of them, by the way, but I think we drafted a guy named Coca. If I get this right, I'll laugh. Um, in 2005, we had three picks in the first round, and I believe we took Jacob LaRue, Aaron Thompson, and maybe Chris Volstad. Volstad had a career, but the others did not. It did not work, and that was a major problem for us going forward because we just didn't get it right. But by the way, 50% of the people who are drafted in the first round are not going to make it. It's just how it goes. So before you compliment the angels, why don't you look at what's going on in baseball and realize that there's a chance if you are a parent of a high school kid that your kid better go to college because more and more drafted players are college players. <clears throat> we never liked drafting college players because they have lower upside than high school players, lower projection. You are who you are in college, and there's only one way to go, and that's down. In high school, when you are a high school pitcher and you go to the minor leagues and develop for four years or five years, there is a chance that instead of throwing 89, you're going to throw 95. Instead of 94, you're going to throw 99. You're going to develop in our system an unbelievable breaking ball, and then you're going to be Josh Beckett and be the MVP of the World Series. All of that is possible when you are a high school pitcher. College pitchers, generally speaking, the majority of the time, they are who they are at best. But our owner, like many other owners, they prefer college players. Why do you think that is? Because most owners don't buy green bananas. They're worried that they're finished, that they're going to either sell the team or pass away owning the team. And they want their first ring or their second ring or their third ring. Most just want their first ring. And they want players who they're paying these big bonuses to where the odds are they're not going to make it anyway. They want to get them to the big leagues if they're going to get to the big leagues as quickly as possible. And college pitchers are older, obviously, closer to the big leagues, obviously, because they need less development, but their upside is smaller. So watch that trend going forward as more college players are drafted. But the phenoms that you used to see come out of high school, the Jose Fernandez's, the Josh Beckett's, et cetera, they're not going to be as many. Okay. Sorry, Coca, that went longer than we had planned, but I just was in the mood. I really wanted to express myself. And I like to express confidence. I like to express you. I like to express to you through my clothing, which is not express, except they're a sponsor. Why not? Express is all new and all about you with the Fresh Mix. While we're doing this, don't put the show on pause, please, but go to express.com and just check out all the clothes they have. They have casual clothes. They have versatile clothes. They have super comfortable styles for whatever you want to do. You want to eat extra food and get a burgeoning waist? Great. You want to have slim fitting, nice graphic tees? Sweet. You want to go to the beach with a muscle shirt? Done. You want some chinos? Fair enough. You want to wear clothes to a wedding? Express.com. Be on the lookout. There's some great summer deals. Okay. Let's do quickly the nothing personal pick of the day to tell you that the All-Star game was won by the American League. They won their A straight. We're 94 and 75. We're back to regular season games tomorrow with the Yankees Red Sox. Tonight is the NBA Finals. 
The Bucks are favored by four, and my concern is the Suns are going to hit their shots. In analyzing this game with Matthew Coco Puffs, it occurs to me that if the Suns hit their shots and Giannis somehow is defended better and doesn't shoot free throws as well as he did, the Bucks could have a problem. I'm going to take the points tonight. 94 and 75. Sons plus four. When we come back, we're going to review a movie that you told me to watch, one of the listeners, and it was absolutely fascinating and worth talking about. We will be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. How you doing? Thanks for making it through that gauntlet. I do appreciate you. Thank you for rating and reviewing and for following. And most importantly, thank you for telling your friends about Nothing Personal and having them listen. It really does mean something to me. This is the time of year where we have to try to go after the podcast awards, the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Many of you have signed up where you have to give your email and a password, but we have a chance to be nominated as best male hosted podcast. We have a chance to be nominated as the people's choice podcast or the top sports and recreation category podcast. Please go to podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up. It'd be cool, right? Because I already have the acceptance speech and it does involve Coca and it does involve all of you. All right, so we watch a movie on Nothing Personal every day, and I love all of the people who come to me on Twitter, David P. Sampson, with movie suggestions, But and I keep track. Lest you think that I don't, I've got something in my phone, a note, where I keep every movie I've watched, but I also keep a list of every movie that you've told me to see. And there's just so many I can't keep up, but I do try as hard as I can. And one of you said, please watch The State of Texas versus Melissa a documentary about Melissa Lucio, the first Hispanic woman to be put on death row in the state of Texas. It is a story that is, uh, I don't normally give my political opinions. I will tell you that I am a proponent of capital punishment. And the reason I am, not as it stands now, just FYI. And I also understand the importance of the constitutional right to a defense, the right to appeals. I understand all of that. I understand that there are people who get wrongly convicted and there has to be a process to get them unconvicted before they are put to death. But I also know that the way it's done where it takes 10, 12 years, the expense of it, it is not financially working. May not be morally working to some of you. What happened here is there was a girl who happened to be Melissa's daughter, who died, and she was convicted by a jury of having beaten her daughter to death. The pictures are awful. The explanation is interesting. What certain doctors said who were hired by the defense, what certain doctors said who were hired by the prosecution, the expert witnesses, My overall take on the movie 
is that it's worth seeing to put in your mind what it is to be sentenced to death, to understand what it is and what happens to the family of the convicted person. The focus, though, on her being the first woman and the first Hispanic woman is not as interesting to me because, as you know, I don't see color. I don't care about race. I don't care about anything. I care about people who commit crimes getting punished. State of Texas versus Melissa is worth your time to make a decision for yourself to get you to think about where you stand on certain issues like the death penalty, to understand what the producers were trying to do. Were they trying to elicit your emotion, your sympathy? Were they trying to lay out the facts? When you watch a documentary, you have to understand what is going on with the director. What is their goal? What is their bias? It's like watching a Michael Moore documentary and not thinking to yourself, what's he trying to say here? And from what side of the aisle is he trying to say it? State of Texas versus Melissa Lucio. All right, we have a lot to talk about regarding Rob Manford and what happened at the All-Star Game. At the All-Star Game, there is a, uh, there's a thing that happens every year. The commissioner of baseball meets the media. And they call it meeting the Baseball Writers Association of America. But those are the people who are the media in baseball. And the head of the union, Tony Clark, or whoever the head is at, at a particular year, meets the media. The commissioner meets the media. And this year, it was quite interesting. So we want to talk about it. And you found it interesting, too. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson, get on my Twitter, David P. Samson, and you can talk to me, DM me. They're coming fast and furious, Vin Diesel, and I do my best. Please do not be upset. Keep trying, because once in a while, I see something that catches my eye. Once in a while, you're going to get buried under an avalanche of 50 at a time. It just happens that way. I'm totally sorry about that. But this was a good one, because I want to talk about it. Could you please tell me whether to believe Rob Manford and what he said about doubleheaders and extra innings? Because I really want those rules to stay. Thank you. I appreciate you asking that because Rob Manford covered a litany of topics yesterday because there's a lot going on in baseball. And he said some interesting things. And the way he said them made me smile. He said, when we adopted seven inning doubleheaders for this year, we didn't know the country was going to look like it does now. We were scared it was going to look very, very different. What does that mean? Rob Manfred was trying to explain to the fans who have been complaining about seven inning doubleheaders, the fans who buy tickets to nine inning games, get seven inning games. Horse hockey. The reason why there aren't going to be seven inning doubleheaders anymore is because MLB is not going to fight about it in collective bargaining because I told you how it works. There are 250 issues, 200 of which are easy to solve, 50 of which are very difficult to solve and end up being traded. And that's how you get to an agreement, even if there's a work stoppage. That is how it works. The players union does not want seven inning doubleheaders because it impacts their stats and they get paid on stats. And MLB owners are not willing to fight to protect seven inning doubleheaders. They don't care enough. 
So Rob then says, hey, seven inning doubleheaders was all about COVID because the less time they're on the field talking and the less time they're in the clubhouse, the better it is. Except they knew very well when they started the season that vaccines were going to be readily available and that players were going to be vaccinated if they wanted to be. And if players didn't get vaccinated and got COVID, they'd be in COVID protocols and they'd get shamed into getting vaccinated, which they should, even though Tony Clark said he's not going to shame anyone into getting vaccinated. You shouldn't have to be shamed into getting vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated at this point, I want to know why. But Rob was trying to say that he thought that the world would be covered in COVID and therefore, we wanted the players to be protected, et cetera. Meanwhile, there's now full capacity, which was planned by MLB before this season started. They knew there'd be full capacity during the course of the summer, guaranteed. So the seven-inning doubleheader was not, as Rob said, a COVID-related change. Anyway. There's not going to be seven any doubleheaders next year. They've got to bargain it, but I promise you that's going away. Now, what about the extra inning rule? Rob was saying that that could be COVID-related too. Putting a man on second base with no outs in the 10th inning to get the games over and done with. And it's worked perfectly because uh, Coca, I don't believe there's been an MLB game 15 innings or greater since they started this rule, not one. Most extra inning games end in the 10th inning, some in the 11th, there've been an occasional sprinkling of 12 or 13. But that's a rule that Rob Manford is saying goes away. Why? That's a rule that I've embraced and loved and fought for for so many years because extra inning games are not good for the broadcaster. They're not good for the team. They're not good for the executives. And half the time, by the end of the extra inning game, if it goes 16, 17 innings, there's no one in the stands anyway. And it's two o'clock in the morning and it impacts your team the next day. And it's just not good for anyone. So that one may be worth fighting for. But why are the owners not willing in a new collective bargaining agreement to fight for the extra inning rule? Because they've got bigger fish to fry. The players don't like it because they're traditionalists. The players don't like it because pitchers don't want, even though it doesn't count to their ERA, and even though the RBI does count for the hitter who gets the runner in who started on second base, but players want to just play on. Play it the way it's always been played. And that was a theme of what Rob was talking about when he met the media. We want to go back to the way it was when I was 12, the commissioner said. He was talking about shifts. It was sort of interesting. I want to read you this quote. It was pretty good. When asked about getting rid of the shift, he said, it's kind of a restoration that's why people are in favor of eliminating the shift. Front offices in general believe it will have a positive effect on the play of the game. Can I tell you what's funny about that? Is the reason why there's a conversation about changing the shift. The shift is when you've got three out, three infielders on the right side of second base, on the first base side of second base, because you're trying to stop lefties from pulling the ball for a base hit. Instead, they pull it and it's a ground ball. Everyone's trying to do launch angle. And that's the big thing that's being talked about. Let's get rid of the shift. The shift's been going on forever. 
it's more pronounced now because of analytics. It's more exact now because of analytics. When I can look at what a hitter has done every at bat of his career, high school, college pro, and I know the majority of the time it's going to be a ground ball to a certain spot, but I choose not to play an outfielder or infielder in that spot. What the hell am I doing? The object of the game is to get 27 outs while scoring more runs than your opponent. That's what the game of baseball is. And we now want to tell people that the best way to get 27 outs that you have decided is something you cannot do. You still have to get 27 outs, but we're going to make sure it's harder to get 27 outs. My biggest concern is pitching injuries and how abnormal it is for pitchers to throw 100. I want the ability to get as many outs as quickly as possible with as few pitches as possible. If I'm an offensive hitting coach, I am teaching my players from the minor leagues on up when I'm developing them how to hit against the shift, how to deal with it. And why do we have to go back to baseball when we were 12? All the other sports get to evolve. They get to change rules without the world coming to an end. No one is singing R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel sad that there's three infielders playing on the right side of second base. G.M.A.B. Let's pick our battles, folks. Do you know what will get rid of the shift? The next general manager and president who are willing to find another way to study analytics and find another way to get 27 outs in a more efficient manner that cuts down injuries, that keeps games flowing and gets your players in the best position they can to score runs or to get your players in the best position to stop the other team from scoring runs. That's what will get rid of the shift. Mandating two fielders on either side of the base. Come on. I want nine fielders to be able to play right field. If you think that they're going to hit the ball to right field, I want eight guys. You got to have a catcher and a pitcher. Seven guys. Actually, you don't even need a catcher. If you're willing to throw the ball and nobody catches it, I guess that's just a wild pitch, even though it could be a strike. It could hit the umpire right in the jimmy, though. I want you to be able to play your players wherever you want to play them. And if you can't get a hit with seven guys playing right field, then you suck, and I don't want to hear about it. Rob Manford also talked about the Oakland A's. This was a good one. The Oakland A's right now have a big vote coming up. They've got their government entity voting on whether or not to assist the A's in building a ballpark. To assist. Rob Manfred was asked about the A's. And he said, anyone who thinks that the A's will not relocate to Vegas and that we're using that as a bluff is making a mistake. (laughs) Right on script, right? Of course, it's a bluff. Until the vote happens, I think it's happening at the end of July. This is page two of the let's get money from the public entity playbook. You ask to relocate, to seek permission to relocate. While you're negotiating and trying to get votes on the government side, you have got to get the city council and the city and county commissioners to get you your votes. Meanwhile, you're pretending to negotiate with other cities. You set up meetings with other cities. Is it a coincidence that the Oakland A's have a meeting scheduled in Vegas for the day after the vote that's taking place in Oakland? 
on whether or not that building is going to get financed and move forward? Page one, part two, line four is the commissioner gets up and does you a solid by saying, hey, the owner's done everything he can. The owner and the president have put millions of dollars and millions of hours into getting a new ballpark. And this is go time, show time, or no time at all. So Rob Manford tells the media, hey, Vegas is definitely a relocation market for sure. It's actually being saved for baseball as an expansion market. They don't want to relocate to Vegas. They want to expand to Vegas. Of course, we want it to be first sport in, but we're not. They'd be the third sport in. Sort of like being the 26th new stadium. Who was that? Maybe we were the 27th new stadium. The 28th new stadium. Maybe 28. And I think 27 because Sky Dome was built already. And then there's no Tampa, no Oakland. So maybe we're 26. It's not quite the panacea. Not quite the panacea. Do you know what the Oakland officials and Oakland, do you know what they're fighting over? I just want to mention this. You, I can make you understand how what you're being told in public is not exactly how it's working behind the scenes. The officials in Oakland want the A's to not be able to relocate if money is put in and public money is put in. They don't want them to relocate for 45 years. The A's will only commit to staying in Oakland for 20 years as part of the deal to build this new stadium. The life of a new stadium is more than 20 years. The reason why the public's at 45 and the team is at 20 is that normally it's about 35 years And that's where that negotiation ends. That's not going to stop a deal from happening, but yet it's being brought up as a major deal issue. It's not. How about this next deal issue the Oakland A's are having? The government wants the Oakland A's to provide affordable housing in the area at the ballpark, and the A's don't want to. The reason the A's don't want to be committed to a certain percentage of affordable housing is because by definition, that will change the profitability of that surrounding development and the profitability of the surrounding development at a ballpark is not subject to revenue sharing with other teams. And it's used to help pay your share of the ballpark, which the Oakland A's are willing to pay a tremendous share. The reason why public officials ask for affordable housing and union involvement in the building of a ballpark, et cetera, is because those are the people and the lobbyists who are putting money into their coffers, helping them get reelected. These are issues that don't kill a deal. These are issues that get negotiated. They basically get split down the middle and deals happen every day between the public and private entities. But all of these different distractions are being put out there to protect you from the absolute truth. And the absolute truth is that in Oakland, when you are the owner of the A's, you have one thing in mind, one thing. It's just business. If we have to leave, we have to leave. Sorry, Oakland. It's nothing personal. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.